Highland Falls, El Paso, Clarksville, Watertown, and from other important military capitals around the globe. Eye on Defense brings the top military and defense issues into focus. Eye on Defense is proudly sponsored by Big Sarge Pre-Owned TA-50 Emporium and The Last Hope Jewelry and Pawn. And now, citizens of Earth, brace yourselves for the next episode of Eye on Defense. Defense, 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 defense. All right, we're back, everybody. It's uh, 12 April, and this is episode 113. Uh, I got 10 stories tonight. Uh, one, two, three, four of them are from Defense News by the same author, Jen Judson, uh, who we really like on this show. Uh, the, the first four stories are from her. Uh, great stories. Uh, so we'll start off with that. Um, kind of on a, not personal, but it kind of, it was warm today. So I pulled out my bike for the first time this year. So here it is, April 12. And for the first time I pulled out, I don't ride in the winter because I just, I don't want to be too cold. So I pulled it out today and rode it around. So I don't know if you got a bike, get out there and pull your road bike out and go for a ride. It's always good exercise. I don't know if you can listen to the podcast while you're on a bike, though. You probably should probably shouldn't. You know, you should probably keep your wits about you on the road. You don't want to get run over. Uh, I think hiking is a different matter than running. But uh, anyway, enough on that. We'll go with the first story, ISV, uh, infantry, infantry Squad Vehicle, which uh, we talk about. Well, we haven't talked about the ISV for a while. Uh, we did a couple of stories on it once it came out. Uh, but there's some big news on it. This is from Jen Judson, like I said. Uh, Defense News, 5 April. GM Defense squad vehicle cleared by Army for full rate production. So this is kind of a big deal. It's not kind of a big deal. It is a big deal. So the U.S. Army approved a full rate production for GM Defense manufactured infantry squad vehicle, also known as ISV, according to 5 April service and company announcements. So the Army has a statement. Uh, this green light represents a major Army acquisition programmatic milestone in motorizing infantry brigade combat teams, security force assistance brigades, as well as Army Ranger units, the Army said in a statement. Uh, that term motorized. When's the last time you've seen that term motorized? Anybody remember the 9th Infantry Division up at Fort Lewis, the motorized division? Anyway, moving on. Uh, the Army plans to buy a total of 2,593 ISVs over the course of the program. GM Defense has already delivered more than 300 vehicles to the Army, fielding many to the service's 82nd Airborne and 101st Airborne Divisions, the company said. In June of 20, GM Defense won the contract to build the ISV. It's designed for easy transport to operational environments following developmental testing of three vendor submissions. The company received $214.3 million to produce 649 vehicles by the end of FY24. The 5,000-pound ISV is based on the Chevy Colorado ZR2 truck and uses 90% commercial off-the-shelf parts. It can be sling-loaded from a UH-60 Blackhawk and fits inside a CH-47 Chinook. The Army wrapped up testing this year to address identif uh, issues identified in prior evaluations and the 2020 uh, report, the Pentagon's chief Wep weapons tester slammed the ISV, citing the troop carrier's vulnerabil vulnerability and uncomfortable ride. The service told Defense News at the time it was working to fix issues that cropped up 
in initial operating, operational testing, including that the ISV did not meet the requirement to be able to travel 1,200 mean miles between operational mission failure, also flagged by the weapons testers' most recent report. That's kind of reliability stuff. Uh, 2021 annual reports testing noted additional troubles, including steering problems, bent frames, seat frames, engine cracks, and overheating. The Army began new reliability compliance testing last summer to evaluate its fixes for the issues identified and wrapped up in January. Part of that testing included driving the ISV for 5,000 miles over varying terrain and speeds to ensure the ISV complied with the requirement for mean time between operational mission failure. Uh, despite identified issues, the ISV's key requirements were met, providing which, which is to provide small tactical units a faster, more efficient entry into operational areas. And this is from a guy named Steve Herrick, the Army's product lead for ground mobility vehicles with PEO, combat support, and combat service support. Since the initial contract, GM defenses also demonstrated missions for the ISV beyond the initial nine passenger troop carrier to include fire support, command and control, electronic warfare, counter, unmanned aircraft systems, reconnaissance and logistics, and casualty evacuation. And of course, they're working on electrified ISV. So the ISV holds nine people, uh, which is, of course, the size of an infantry squad in the Army. And every once in a while, you see them in the news. Um, but they're going to the light brigades. And the 82nd's already got them. So that's, they made full rate production, so that's a big deal. The Army plans to buy uh, 2,593 of them. All right, moving on. Let's see. This next one. So if you remember, the ISV is part of a, a next-generation combat vehicle, which is an Army priority. So the Army's delivering on that. And the next story from Jen Judson is going to, talk about another priority which is the uh, IBCS let me pull it up real quick stand by okay I found it so this is from 12 April which is today again from Jen Judson Defense News U.S. Army Greenlight's key battle command system for full rate production uh, the U.S. Army has approved the integrated battle command system IBCS remember that for full rate production so this is a second major program, uh, priority program for the Army that's hit full rate production, which means the Army's doing what they said they were going to do. Let me get back to the article. The U.S. Army has approved the integrated battle command system for the full rate production following years of delays as the service struggled with technical issues partly due to the expansion of the system's mission well beyond simply serving as the brain for air and missile defense. Here's a quote here from Brigadier General Frank Lozano, PEO, which means Program Executive Officer, for Missiles in Space. He said this on 11 April. The Army is proving it can and will succeed in its modernization plans as we continue to build momentum for the future. The sensor and effector integration of this program brings air and missile defense. Let me read that again. The sensor and effector integration this program brings to air and missile defense will ensure that our warfighters are best equipped to provide air defense against enemy threats. The first part of that sentence is kind of important. Uh, sensor and effector. You might hear that in the future. Um, as they tie sensors to shooters, we've talked about this a bunch of times. Uh, Project Convergence, JADC2, Joint All Domain Command and Control, uh, you know, Kill Chain. These are all buzzwords, but sensor and effector is 
basically something senses a ground sensor, a human sensor, uh, a satellite, uh, something from the from their time, uh, a UAV, anything, and then it's it's affected by something else. It could be jammed. It could be shot with a laser. It could be shot with a kinetic weapon. It could be crashed into. So sensor and effector. You might start hearing that in the future. Anyway, moving on. Back to the article. Northrop Grumman uh, developed IBCS, which means Integrated Battle Command System, just a reminder, was originally created to serve as a command and control center for the Army's future air missile defense system. It, it was to tie together a new 360-degree radar and potentially new launchers replacing the Patriot weapon. But the Army expanded the IBCS, deciding the system would also connect other sensors and shooters on the battlefield, like the still-in-development indirect fire protection capability, which is another uh, priority. Uh, the IFPC is designed to defend against rockets, artillery, mortars, and cruise missiles and drones. It is often described by service officials as the Army's answer to joint all-domain command and control. And which is a Pentagon-led effort to connect sensors and shooters across the entire military as one fighting force. So that's kind of important. Uh, Northrop received $1.4 billion uh, for low-rate initial production on its future battle command system December of 21. They spent over $2.7 billion in developmental funding. So December 21, we're at uh, March of 23. Uh, the IBCS also demonstrated expanded capabilities at events like Project Convergence and Fall of 21 at Yuma Proving Ground, Arizona. Two full rate production the full rate production decision comes as the United States ships the first two batteries worth of IBCS to Poland for the country's Patriot systems it bought in two, 2018. Poland is set to become the first operational user of the IBCS this summer. We've talked about it a million times on this show. Poland is not messing around. Moving on. Uh, other European-based NATO allies are watching Poland and the and evolution of the American program of record. And for its part, Northrop submitted IBCS in an Australian competition for joint ba uh, battle management system, while Japan and the United Kingdom are each seeking international options for an air defense battle command capability. The United States chose IBCS as the command and control capability for a new air and missile defense architecture in Guam, where it will connect a variety of sensors and shooters. Northrop is working with the Missile Defense Agency to tie IBCS to other homeland defense capabilities. So that's the second full rate production we talked about. Uh, so we're going to, now we're going to get into the Pacific stuff. A couple of stories from her about the Pacific. We'll start the first one with this big exercise they're doing in Australia. This is from 7 April. Army readies for record-setting logistics exercises in the Pacific. Um, U.S. Army is preparing to put its logistics tail to the test in the Indo-Pacific, considering the most challenging operational theater in the world by service officials. This summer, excuse me, the service will hold a large-scale exercise in Australia dubbed Talisman Sabre. As part of the two-week training event that starts in late July, the Army will deliver massive amounts of equipment across challenging terrain and large distances. And this is a quote from Brigadier General Jared Helwig, the Army's 8th Theater Sustainment Command commander. And get ready to hear that name because it's quoted kind of throughout this article and even the next one. 
logistics and statements are essential to carving out a key role for the Army in the Pacific as the United States seeks to deter China and prepares to protect allies and partners. Top military officials have said the region will require the Army to adapt its approach to logistics. And of course, the Army is standing up uh, a cross-functional team that enables deployment of troops and large amounts of equipment, even in contested environments. I remember we talked about that a couple episodes ago. Uh, the cross-functional team uh, contest, contested logistics. Remember we, anyway, if you, I don't think it, I advertised that. I think we just covered it. Or maybe we did. I don't remember. Uh, anyway, back to the article. Talisman Saber is an exercise between Australia and the United States that occurs every other year and will prioritize the logistics tale with a smaller emphasis on other operations. He added, same guy, uh, joining the United States and Australian armies are also South Korea, Indonesia, and Japan. Uh, this member, General Helwig, uh, Helwig's command will be set up in, Br- in Brisbane, Australia, which it has not done outside Hawaii before. Additionally, the command post will consist of a joint coalition command. We'll have a mix of Australian, uh, U.S. Army, and joint forces. Uh, First Corps Expeditionary Sustainment Cam- Command will set up in Townsville, which is on the northeast coast of Australia. First Corps, of course, is out of uh, Fort Lewis, Wa- uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, and the 25th Division Sustainment Brigade will be in Darwin. Uh, the distance between Brisbane and Darwin is roughly the same as the distance between Fort Stewart, Georgia, and Fort Carson, Colorado, which is 1,617 miles. 25th Infantry Division is in Hawaii, and of course. First Corps is in Fort Lewis, and 25th is one of the divisions assigned to First Corps, along with the 11th Airborne up in Alaska. Moving on, the exercise will include a joint logistics over-the-shore exercise where the Army will take 17 M1 Abrams tanks off an Army pre-post stock, a float ship, and onto watercraft, as well as 400 pieces of rolling stock, which has never been exercised at this level in theater, the watercraft will land on an undeveloped beach and the tanks will roll off, saving Private Ryan style, Helwig said. That's a quote. The Army will construct its Trident Pier, a 1,200-foot pier that requires about 100 soldiers to assemble to offload equipment. On, once on the beach in Australia, the 25th Infantry Division will drive the tanks and equipment 100 miles to Townsville. My question is, where are they going to get the tank drivers? 25th ID is a light division. There's no tanks in 25th ID. So are they going to fly tank uh, 19 kilo driver uh, operators from, I don't know, where's the f- closest tank to, to Hawaii? American tank. Closest American tank to Hawaii is, the answer is, Fort Carson, Colorado? I don't think there's any tanks in Korea anymore. There's probably prepo there. Anyway, don't listen to me. Moving on. Uh, back to the article. Much of Talisman Saber's focus area stems from lessons learned in a smaller annual exercise in the Philippines last year. Uh, Helwig said the service will increase the complexity of the annual exercise in the Philippines this year as well. While it took over four locations last year, it will have nine. Uh, I think that's about it. One, one more paragraph. While logistics will be front and center at Talisman Saber, the Army will also exercise logistics and sustainment all year through Operation Pathways, the United States Army Pacific's command series of annual exercises focused on building relationships with allies and partners. Kind of a long article there. Okay, the last one from Jen Judson. Again, D- 
dealing with logistics and the Pacific. Uh, this is from 11 April. U.S. Army officials reveals watercraft network as logistics focus areas. Now, who knew that the Army has watercraft? They do. Um, and of course, you know, you've got a whole division out there in Hawaii. And then you want to move that division around, you're going to have watercraft. So um, here's the article from 11 April. The U.S. Army will focus on developing watercraft, power generation capabilities, and more effective command and control network as part of a newly formed modernization team meant to ease the movement of equipment, weapons, and people in challenging environments, according to the services undersecretary. Of course, that's Gabe Camarillo. Uh, while he wouldn't go into detail on who would lead the new cross-functional team, uh, he said that it will prioritize modernization in key areas you need to operate in the Pacific. Now, this is the cross-functional team contested logistics that I kind of referred to in the last article. Um, and then he has a quote here. You're thinking of everything from intra-theater lift requirements and everything we're doing on watercraft to our ability to provide refueling water and electrical power. Some requirements have been on the shelf for some time but the team will try to bring in the, in the 21st century. And the name of this cross-functional team is called the Con Contested Logistics Cross-Functional Team. And it's going to be up in, uh, or over in, what's it called? Redstone Arsenal, sorry. Uh, let's see. Here's another quote from General Helwig. Uh, the focus areas for contested logistics align with what the head of the Pacific Base 8th Theater Sustainment Command, our friend Brigadier General Jared Helwig, in particular, the commander said he wants better common operating picture from factory to foxhole across the logistics tail. Uh, the General Helwig also said the Army needs a new watercraft. The service recently experimented with that capability in Project Convergence. And his quote is what we learned about watercraft can do, but more importantly, what they can't do now in terms of age of the fleet. The Army has not embarked on a new watercraft program since the mid-1990s. So it's pivotal time for Army watercraft, and this is a quote from the PEO, uh, Combat Support, Combat Service Support, General Luke P uh, Peterson. The service hit an important milestone on 10 October 22 when it put its first prototype, the Maneuver Support Vessel Light, in the water in Portland, Oregon. The Army is also performing service life extension programs on landing craft, utility vessels used to transport equipment and troops ashore, as well as on its modular causeway systems a bridging capability that connects a ship and a dock. And the service is also working on maneuver support vessel heavy requirement and a draft document laying out capability development plans. Like I've said over and over, all this stuff connects. You know what I mean? You've got this uh, division out in the I-Corps, First Corps, I-Corps, out in the Pacific in uh, training with uh, the Australians. And then now the next article you read is about a new army watercraft all right so that's four in a row from jen judson and defense news and while we're out in the pacific in australia we might as well start talking about japan because japan has got this is also from defense news i think a lot of my articles are from defense news this this uh this episode um let's assume they're all from defense news unless i tell you different so this one's from Defense News. 11 April from Mary Yamaguchi, Japan signs $2.8 billion deal for long-range missile development. Uh, Japan's Defense Ministry announced Tuesday it has signed a contract worth 380 billion yen, or $3 billion, 
with the company's top defense contractor, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, to develop and mass-produce long-range missiles for deployment as early as 2026. The ministry said contracts include enhanced versions of Mitsubishi Type 12 missile for surface, sea, and air launches, as well as a hypersonic ballistic missile for defense of remote islands. Mass production of the Type 12 land-to-ship guided missile and hypersonic gliding missiles will begin this year, the ministry said. Officials refused to provide the number of missiles that Japan plans to deploy, but indicated that production is gradually expected to gradually increase over the next five years. Uh, due to limited space at home, Japan plans to hold pre-deployment missile tests at military bases in the United States. Another contract is for development of submarine launch long-range anti-ship guided missiles beginning this year and planned through 2027. Japan has been strengthening defense in, south, in its southwest and recently placed missile units on remote islands as a deterrence in case of emergency involving Taiwan, uh, which, of course, China considers a rogue province and is threatened to take back by force. Uh, the Prime Minister of Japan, Fumio, uh, Fumio Kishida, said Japan is also buying 400 American-made long-range tomahawks capable of hitting targets up to 994 miles away or 1,600 kilometers for deployment beginning in 2026. The Tomahawks are a stopgap while Mitsubishi works to upgrade and extend the range of its missiles, and Japan plans to double its spending over the next five years. That's a pretty good one there. Now, so we're talking about, let me go to some uh, Japanese subs. So we got a small story on Japanese submarines. We got three submarine stories in a row, believe it or not. Uh, Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force Commission 2nd uh, Taigi, T-A-I-G-E-I, class submarine. This is from, oh boy, I didn't write down where this is from. I think this is Asian Military Review is where I got it from. Um, let me drink some water real quick. So there's a lot of Japanese words in this, uh, so I'm probably going to mess it up, so brace yourselves. Uh, the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force has commissioned its second Taigi-class diesel electric submarine uh, service announced on social media on 20 March. The boat, which was ordered by the Japanese government under a $545 million contract in 2018, was commissioned at the facilities of Kawasaki Heavy Industries in Kobe and is now in service as JS Hakugi SS514. All right, so that's a submarine. So according to the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force, this, this submarine, uh, the Taigei, which means big whale, big whale, has an overall length of 84 meters, a beam of 9.1 meters, a draught of 10.4 meters, and a standard displacement of about 3,000 tons. It is operated by a crew complement of 70 and has been designed to support female personnel. Uh, this class will employ a new advanced combat management system and a submarine consisting of integrated command and control sensors and weapon systems has uh, survivability increased, increased with a tor torpedo countermeasure system comparable to the one fitted in the last four SOAR U-class boats. In terms of armaments, this class is equipped with six HU-606 533mm torpedo tubes that can launch a variety of ordnance, including the new Type 8 Type 18 heavyweight torpedo, 
this is expected to replace the in-service Type 89 torpedo and feature enhanced performance and lethality. Construction of up to seven boats by 2028 have been authorized under the uh, 2018 Midterm Defense Program, although it is believed that the production could be further extended. I got another sub-story. This is the United States submarine story. I don't think we've ever done three submarine stories. Have we even ever done a submarine story? I don't know. Now we're doing three. This is from, of course, USNI. This is a U.S. submarine story. This is a good one from Sam Legrone from April 8th. The U.S. Navy announces USS Florida guided missile submarine deployment to the Middle East. Uh, as you're going to find out from this article, the United States really doesn't talk about their subs too much. So here's the article. USS Florida, SSGN-728, deployed to the Middle East this week after spending months in the Mediterranean Sea, the United States Navy said in a rare public announcement. The Ohio-class guided missile submarine entered the Suez Canal on Friday from the Mediterranean Sea bound for the 5th Fleet, a U.S. Navy spokesman told USNI News on Saturday. Here's a quote, I guess from the Navy. Uh, the submarine entered Region 6, April 6th, I'm sorry, the submarine entered the region on April 6th and began transiting the Suez Canal the following day, said Commander Tim Hawkins. The Florida is a nuclear-powered guided missile submarine homeported in Kings Bay, Georgia. It is capable of carrying up to 154 Tomahawk land attack cruise missiles and is deployed by the U.S. 5th Fleet to help ensure regional maritime security and stability. A photo released by the United States Navy shows the submarine on the surface and underway in the Suez Canal equipped with a dry shelter for the use of special operations underwater vehicles. In a rare public announcement, the rare public announcement follows Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin's extension of the deployment of the carrier USS George H.W. Bush CVN-77 following March attacks on U.S. forces in Syria. That injured a dozen Americans and killed a contractor. The United States is also sending a squadron of Air Force A-10 Warthogs close air support to the Middle East. The latest moves of U.S. forces comes as Iran's Secretary, Sectarian Revolutionary Guard Corps planning drone attacks against Israeli merchant ships in the Persian Gulf and the Arabian Sea in re retaliation for Israeli airstrikes on targets in Syria. While most submarine operations are closely held secrets, the Pentagon has been known to highlight the presence of submarines as a deterrent measure. The quartet of Ohio-class submarines retrofitted from their original role of carrying nuclear ballistic missiles to Tomahawks have a unique presence in the mission, unique presence mission for the Navy. The 154 land attack missiles aboard the Florida have a range in excess of 1,000 nautical miles and can be launched under the sea with little warning. USS Florida has been operating extensively in the Mediterranean as a hedge against Russian activities in the region as Moscow's invasion of Ukraine continues. Uh, the U.S. European Command published photos of Florida pulling into Naples, Italy in March, and operating with the Navy SEALs in February, and sailing with the U.S. cruiser USS Lady Gulf CG-55 in November. And in the Pacific, the Navy has publicized the deployment of SSGN USS Michigan, SSGN-727, showing the submarine operating near Guam in March. That's pretty much it for that. And the last submarine story is from UK. Royal Navy submarine completes historic Mediterranean mission. This is from 11 April from the UK Navy. 
uh, Royal Navy submarines return home after completing a historic patrol of the Mediterranean. The conventionally armed hunter-killer submarine HMS Audacious was on operations for two days short of a year, a mammoth 363 days away from her base on the Clyde, making it the longest ever deployment for any Royal Navy's new astute-class submarines. Uh, here's a quote from the commanding officer. James Howard, my ship's company, has delivered an unprecedented period of success on operations. We maintain a high capability and silent nuclear-powered conventionally armed submarine at high readiness for almost a year. In doing so, we operated at arm's length from the UK, providing support to NATO and exercising with partners in the region. In March of last year, she sailed from her home in HM Naval Base Clyde at Fos Lane in Scotland to the eastern reaches of the Mediterranean in response to Russian aggression in Ukraine. Audacious spent 95 days under NATO command as she supported the Alliance's efforts to combat illicit activity, people smuggling, and the legal, legal trade in eastern in the eastern Mediterranean. In all, Audacious was a home away from her base port for 363 days, proving the Royal Navy's newest nuclear-powered submarines are capable of deploying for extended periods without support as per their design. There you have it, man. Three sub-stories in a row. Uh, how many stories we got left? Two more stories, and that's it. Uh, one's from Italy, and the next one's Romania. Uh, let me pull it up here. Here we go. This is Italy. Defense news. Italy reveals plans for converting Gulfstream jets by Tom Kington, 10 April. The Italian Air Force is planning to convert two Gulfstream jets to electro electronic attack compass call variants with an option for a third, a source with the service told Defense News. Uh, the jets are to be converted from six Gulfstream aircraft in Italy. I'm sorry, let me read that again. The jets are to be converted from six Gulfstream aircraft Italy already has on order, with the remainder to be converted into early warning variants, said the source. The decision ends uncertainty over what the Air Force plans to do with the, the unconverted Gulfstream jets it ordered. Last year, the Air Force Chief uh, General Goretti told Defense News the service wants six aircraft converted into a mix of electronic attack and early warning versions without providing further details. The U.S. is currently testing the electronic attack version of the Gulfstream G550. Make sure that's the same one. Yep. Um, this aircraft is known as uh, EC-37B Compass Call. It contains electronics transferred from the older EC-130H, which has been in service for decades with the U.S. Air Force, and cannot manage the speed and altitude of the more modern Gulfstream. Uh, the aircraft system is designed to disrupt enemy command and control, communications, radars, and navigation systems. Italy is now trying to receive U.S. approval to update its Gulfstreams to the same standard. Uh, if the United States approves the deal, it will enhance the capabilities of the Italian Air Force 10-strong Gulfstreams fleet, which stemmed from a 2012 acquisition of two jets in the conformal airborne early warning format from Israel Aerospace Industries. The jets have spent the last year flying missions close to Ukraine to monitor airspace near the country, which is fighting. We already know that. Uh, let's see. Israel also cut a deal in 2020 with the United States to obtain two more G550s for signals intelligence and a standard dubbed Airborne Intelligence Surveillance Reconnaissance and Electronic Warfare. 
a government document released last month said Italy would pay $1.33 billion for those two jets and the other six unconverted G550s. And how many more stories? Two more stories. This is the F-35 story from Romania. If I can find it. All right, let's see. Romania selects F-35 to upgrade Air Force fleet. This is from uh, Jaro Solo Adamowski. We do a lot of his stories. The Romanian authorities have approved a plan to acquire F-35 Lightning II fighter jets for the country's Air Force. Uh, the latest move indicates that Romania could be the third Eastern European ally after Poland and the Czech Republic to operate the fifth-generation aircraft. This decision was taken by the Ro Romanian Supreme Council on National Defense at, on 11 April. The number of fighter jets to be purchased and the planned acquisition value were not disclosed. The F-35s are designed to strengthen Romania's modern fighter jet fleet. Uh, the country's air service currently operates 17 used F-16s acquired from Portugal. And last year, the Romanian government signed a contract to buy 32 secondhand F-16s from Norway. Romania is joining a group of Eastern European allies who have set their sights on Lockheed Martin's fifth-generation fighter. Let's see. In June of 22, the Czech government decided to launch negotiations with the United States to buy 24 F-35s. In June of 20, I'm sorry, in January of 20, uh, Poland signed a deal worth about $4.6 to acquire 32 F-35s. And those deliveries are expected to begin in 2024. So that's that. So we went from Italy to Romania. And finally, this last story, uh, this is from National Defense, which is a great magazine. I get it in print, but you can get it online too. And I was going to, I chose one story from it, if I can find it. It's, um, oh yeah, here it is. It's from Michaela Eastley. Israel made high energy laser makes debut. And sometimes we talk about direct energy stuff on here. And I thought this was a pretty good article. So uh, this is from the April uh, 2023 print edition from Michaela Easley. Israel-based Rafael Advanced Defense System debuted its high-energy laser weapon that will augment Israel's Iron Dome air defense system for more modern threats. Called the Iron Beam, the system is designed to neutralize a range of incoming targets, including unmanned aerial systems, rockets, artillery, and mortar rounds using a 100-kilowatt or more directed energy weapon. Uh, here's a quote here from Ryan, uh, Ron Ghazali, who works for uh, Raphael. He says, we can actually focus the beam to the diameter, diameter of a coin in a 10-kilometer range. Uh, the, this is at the uh, Abu Dhabi trade show. Uh, the trade show was the first time that Raphael unveiled the full-scale model of the iron beam. In March of 22, Raphael conducted a series of successful live tests where a demonstrator in intercepted UAVs, mortars, rockets, and anti-tank missiles in different scenarios. Uh, the Iron Beam could be deployed by 2025 as part of Israel's Iron Dome, uh, Ghazali said. The Iron Beam is intended to work in tandem with Israel's Iron Dome air defense system, which is also made by Raphael. And... It's, uh, this is another quote, it's another layer in our air defense strategy and deployment. Operators will be able to choose whether to neutralize threats 
using traditional kinetic missiles or iron beams laser. By using a laser instead of kinetic uh, interceptor, the iron beam has an unlimited magazine, low cost per shot, and creates a minimal collateral damage, according to Raphael. The company signed an agreement with Lockheed Martin in December to jointly develop a high-energy laser system based on iron beam for the use in the United States. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's it. Ten stories. Or is that eleven? Ten. Uh, four of them from Jen Judson. All of them from Defense News, except for the USNI one, uh, the National Defense one. And that's it. I hope I don't have to pay Defense News any money uh, for taking all their stories. Anyway, uh, that's it. Three submarine stories of note. So it'll probably be, I don't know, when, who knows when our next submarine story is. I mean, it was kind of explained that the United States, particularly the United States, doesn't advertise where their subs are. So it's probably no surprise that we haven't done submarine stories. That's it, man. Uh, 113 is in the books, uh, 37 minutes. So, hey, if it's nice where you're at and the weather's getting good, Get out there and do some do some fitness, something. Go for a walk, a run. Bring the podcast with you. And uh, anyway, be a better friend to yourself. So that's it. 113 is in the books. Thank you very much for listening and good night. <laughs>